0: First of all, I know that there are many here that were um, at our marriage retreat over the weekend, and I know you would agree with me, and even if you don't, I'm going to pretend like you do, to say that it was such a great time away. It really was. Maybe that's even understating it somewhat. Um, but to have Taryn and Julie with us, Julie's uh, headed off to back to Cape Town, back to home, back to the the five children uh, to sort out, because school is happening tomorrow. But we're so grateful that Taryn has... Stayed on to join us. Um, for those that weren't on our marriage retreat, we had Taryn and Julie Williams, all the way from Cape Town, joining us and sharing their wisdom, their life, imparting into um, a group, a great group of married couples in our church, and a couple others who joined us for the weekend as well. And we We really felt to reach out to these guys, not that we knew them very, very well. There is a little bit of history there, particularly with Tam and and Julie, and and then obviously connections with friends and families, but we just knew that we wanted something of what is in them to be departed, departed? Deposited It's the word I was looking for. Yeah, no departing, taking place. Yeah, yeah. Imparted, deposited. That's kind of where I was going with it. Um, Just that they would actually bring something to us, which... Again, I can say it's gone over and above what we had expected. And so we're so thankful, Taryn, to be here. Taryn is a husband, father of five, as I mentioned, has been a church leader for a number of years. Uh, More recently is leading a church called Signal Church, which meets right in the cool part of Cape Town, Kloof Street. Uh, If you've ever been to Cape Town City, you would know it It is a very cool part of the city. Um, And already has just brought so much to us. And like I said, your, your ability to communicate, what you have to share is very, very significant and we are very appreciative. So can we please welcome Taryn as he comes to teach us this evening.
1: Woo-hoo. Lovely to be with you guys. It is, I'm actually a little dazed and confused because I was with my wife not so long ago up at like a lake town, a lake little forest and now I'm here with you guys. <laughs> Um, but I got to know many of you in the last time, uh, many hours, day and a half that that was. And it is a real treat. qn hey? And wh- what's your name? Jonti. Jonti. I'm so stoked you guys are in the room. So true story, I've got five children between the ages of uh, 15 and 9. And um, I'm going to free... I'm gonna, I don't have notes. So this means my message can wind in many directions. So I'm as curious as you are where it's going to go, and I hope that the Holy Spirit leads me, and it's not just my wild thoughts and distractedness, but um, I want to speak to you about how an identity in Christ can cause you to prosper even when life is very hard, okay, so I want to speak about how identity in Christ can cause you to, to thrive even, even when life is very hard this idea that we get to see ourselves through the eyes of god it's a very powerful thought because we we in our culture we either find our identity through others you know we look outwards to others we, we find out from our friends our family who am i and they, and they tell us and then some of us go through a time where we're like hey, forget what I, I, my family thinks forget what my parents think forget what my friends think i don't care what society thinks I want to go on an inward journey and we look inwards to find out who we are. Those are two places that people to fit, tend to find their identity. The gospel story, this gospel invitation comes in and says, no, no, both of those are not the place to go to find out who you are. You find out who you are in the sight of God. So instead of going outwards to others to find an identity or inwards to yourself to find an identity, you go upwards to God to find an identity I mean, come on, let's be honest. We are tiny little human beings in a big universe. I mean, can we really say that our lives are valuable? Psalm 8, David is staring up the stars and he says, God, what is a person that you are mindful of him? When I look at the the stars, the moon, the work of your fingers, you know, what am I that you would even care about me? It's a really good question. It can't be because of our size. It's got to be about something else. And, um, you know, when my Eli was born, I remember sitting in Vincent Pilotti Hospital, cradling this little life in my arms, looking out the window at Table Mountain. And looking at this little life, looking up at Table Mountain, and thinking that this little life in my arms was worth 10 million Table Mountains! Not because of his size, but because he was mine. Because he was, he was made in my image. He was my child. And then I understand why David... Da- the answer to David's prayer God cares about us not because of our size, but because of love. But because, because he's, He made us for relationship. He didn't make the stars and the galaxies for relationship. He made us to, to bear His image and to have a relationship uh, w- with Himself. So I want to tell you, a, pull out a story in the Old Testament that I, um, I find hardly anyone knows is there. It's a story of a guy called Mephibosheth. So just say to the person next to you, Mephibosheth. <laughs> And I said it fast, 10 times. No, I'm joking. You don't have to. Mephibosheth. So here's the story of this guy, Mephibosheth. So here's the context. 2 Samuel, you can find you can his story in 2 Samuel 4, 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 16, I think, and 2 Samuel 19. His story comes in little patches, chapters of his story. Here's this little boy. His name's actually not Mephibosheth. He's born Mary Baal. His dad is Jonathan, who is the prince of Israel. His granddad, is on the throne, King Saul. He grows up in a palace. I mean, the palace is his playground. He's even got a nurse that's fully devoted to look after him, you know, to watch after his every, look after his every need to protect him. And this guy, his future looms large. They name him Mirabal because he's gonna confront the darkness. You see, the false god in the area was called Baal. And when he came to the world, his dad said, this guy is gonna confront the false gods. Mary Bo. So he's got, this, he's got this promise over his life. And uh, Jonathan will, is probably going to become the king. And then down the line, he, he's going to become the king. It's like, you know, he's, he's like the, the king's grandson. It's just a matter of time. There's such greatness in his future. So much promise in his life. Such a strong start. And then his granddad and dad go off to battle. And in the thunderous cries of battle something terrible happens. The news comes back from the far distant land of Jezreel and word is out, his granddad and his dad have been killed. And now there is a rival king who will probably take the throne. The nurse panics. She picks him up. He's only five years old. And she runs. You see, in those days, if there's a new king, the first thing that king does is they kill all of the descendants of the previous king because those will be a threat to the throne nurse picks him up, runs. We don't know how far she runs, but as she's running, she drops him and drops him in such a terrible way that he lands on the ground with a poignant thud and he breaks his back. And he becomes completely crippled at age five. And she picks up this broken boy whose limbs can no longer stand the weight of the dreams that he once had for his life and takes him into a small little town of complete obscurity where he grows up as a crippled person. Now, nowadays, crippled people, or you know, phys- physically handicapped people have got a lot of care. In those days, you, you just are so disadvantaged. Top of it, he's got a hide, so he's obscure. And we basically forget this guy exists. He gets a new name, no longer Meribah. They call him Mephibosheth, which means one who faces shame. One who faces shame. And um, I was thinking about how life can be really hard. Maybe not that hard for all of us. My stepdad, when he was 23, dived off rocks in Lindunda Cape Town, broke his back, and had an incredibly hard life. But all of us have experiences that, that where we fall to the ground, experiences where some part of us breaks, experiences where we're on a path and we're excited about where it's going, and the whole thing is comes to a, a tragic ending where we get reduced to the to the, sh- the shadows where we we go into hiding and whatever we had going for us in the few, in the past no longer is there so we face this tremendous setback and you know the longer you live and the more friends you have you you see the same stories repeating themselves whether it's financial uh, difficulties or job loss. It's amazing how people that build their life on a career, things are going well, and suddenly they lose their job. Their company collapses. Uh, And and these kind of experiences are redefining. Or maybe a loved one uh, dies. When I was 16 years old, my dad, who was only 36, died of HIV AIDS, one of the first 100 people in the country to die. Before that, I I, I had this, you know, I lived in the coolest part of Seapoint in a penthouse eight stories high, looking down on Queens Beach. And then my dad dies. He leaves us no money. And in a sense, then I wasn't called an orphan, but there was something orphan-like that came over me. I'd lost my father. Uh, losing loved ones, trauma, terrible things that happen, accidents, illnesses, a diagnosis from doctors. The, the list goes on. Things that that come upon us that, that diminish us, that redefine us, and and. And uh, most people can't put into words what's happening. It's just terrible. But if you go to a therapist, they probably you identify words like shame. Um, your life is being diminished. You find yourself hiding. You just don't have the, the, the oomph you once had to go into the world. You've got a limp. Uh, these experiences tend to happen to us. And they take different shapes and forms, and they sometimes 10 on the rectus scale, sometimes two on the rectus scale. But what they do is they redefine us. Meribel becomes Mephibosheth. He gets a new name, and it's a name. It's saying that what happened to him has redefined him. And um, what to do when this happens. And um, uh, in this room, some of you have experienced that. Some of us, during COVID, we experienced that. Churches sometimes experience these diminishing experiences where difficulties happen. And, um, and in South Africa, a common point of diminishment has been prejudice and racism. I wrote this book, uh, which I mentioned during our time away, and uh, I get emails from people around the world thanking me for this book. And this one woman in England writes to me. Her name is Charmaine Joshua. And she says, hey, I actually come from South Africa. And she says, in South Africa, she tells me this story. She says, when I was 12 years old, my younger sister, Beverly, we won this. We'd only been to the cinema once before. And we won it through this newspaper competition, two tickets to the movie Gandhi." We were so excited, and we arrived there, and dressed up, so excited, and at the entrance, they deflected us to the cinema manager's officer, office, and the, the, the manager said, hey, sorry, there's been a misunderstanding. You can't come here, and she explains, you see, I was Indian, but our surname Joshua, and Beverly Joshua, my sister's name, we'd kind of, they misunderstood, and they said that they walk away with a tail between their legs, completely wounded. She says, the wound that she carried from that singular experience. And um, all of us have these kinds of experiences and and what to do when when, when they come. Well, fast forward 15 years in this tragic story of Mephibosheth because there are some powerful things that happened to his life. King David becomes the king. But what we didn't know about King David in the story the way I've told it yet is King David loved Jonathan, the father of Mirabel, like he was his brother. And in fact, they made a covenant with each other, a promise. They said, I promise to do good to you and your family as long as it's in my power. So King David is now uh, on the throne. And one day he goes, now, I know Jonathan didn't have any children, but what if he did? So he puts out an inquiry. Is there anyone in the land who is the descendant of Jonathan? Because if there is, I want to do good to him because I promised Jonathan that I would do this good to him. And a bit of research goes out and comes back. There is this one person. And the king summons um, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is obviously stressed out. Is this the time when he gets his head chopped off? Because as he arrives in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, King David sees him and says, Do not be afraid. That's his opening words. And then he says, I want to do good to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I want you to sit at my royal table every day for the rest of your life and all the land that belonged to your granddad I want to give to you. It's a beautiful story because Mephibosheth, every time he looks in the mirror, in fact, he describes himself in the next verse as a dead dog. The way he sees himself is defined completely by his circumstance. But actually there is a way of seeing him that transcends his own self-view. See, the most powerful person in the land is the king. In the ancient world, there was the king who defined reality for everyone else. Everyone was subject to the king. Here you've got a king who's saying, I don't see a cripple. I see somebody who's the son of Jonathan. I see somebody who I've made a covenant to his dad, and because of that covenant, I'm going to bless him. And I see someone who I would love to have at my table and I want to give you an inheritance. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel comes to us. And regardless of the things that have happened in our lives, the gospel gives us three promises. Firstly, it gives us an identity as a prince or a princess. Secondly, it gives us an invitation to the table of the king. And thirdly, it gives us inheritance in the land. That preaches nicely, hey? Identity, invitation. Inheritance, maybe just say that to the person next to you. Just see what it feels like to preach those three words. Identity, invitation, inheritance. These are the words that are spoken over our lives. So let's just let's, let's run through those. Firstly, an identity as a kin, king's kid. Your life is not defined by what people think of you. It's not even defined by what you think of you. It's certainly not defined by the bad things that have happened to you. It's defined by God. And there's this invitation to actually see yourself like God sees you as a king's kid. And uh, part of what we need to learn to do is to see each other also as children of God. Um, I remember when we just had Ivy, our third born little Ivy, we'd been stuck in our our house. And we were going to do our first evening outing as a family. Probably about three months too early, you know, for an evening meeting. And we lived in a part of Cape Town, and there was this very trendy market in Hart Bay, Cape Town, where um, on the Friday evening, there was this market right near the, the sea, and people would come, and there'd be food, and cool people would be hanging out. And we got there. There was no one with little children, but we'd taken the drive. And we got there, and we were hungry. This is our first chance to go to a restaurant. So we walk in there. There's tables. And the, you've got to get, sit at a table to get the food. So Julie goes looking for food. I need to find a place at the table for myself, Julie, and, and little Ivy, who I'm carrying around in the little kids, what do you call that thing? The car seats. It was a car seat. You know, car seat little thing. And I look around. There's no place. Oh, wait. There's a little place for one person. If only I could find place for another. And then I look across the table, and I notice a person who's sitting at this table who, she sticks out. And now I'm about to divulge that my, I did not see this right. I think to myself, she probably doesn't belong here. She looks like a, a very impoverished person, just sitting there. Everybody else sitting at the table is eating food. And I, and I think to myself, oh gosh, I hope she, I hope she, sorry about that, I hope she moves. I hope she moves because we really need a seat, okay? Um, those are my thoughts. Then I don't think about it again. So anyway, I sit at the corner of the table, and I'm hoping somebody moves. And I'm waiting for Julie, and I put Ivy down on the table in front of me, and I look into the face of this little girl, and my heart just fills up with joy, and I say, Ivy, you're my princess. Just in the words, you're my princess. Now, I was not in a spiritual mode, but I I promise you that suddenly God spoke to me. Because as I say to Ivy, you're my princess, it's like I see this flashing luminous arrow in my mind, in my imagination, pointing to this lady across the way, and I hear the words, and she is mine. You're my princess, and God's saying, and she is mine. And I look up at this woman, and I feel immediately mortified because I just hoped she would move, and I think to myself, wow, God's just opened up my heart, and um, Julie comes, and I told Julie about this experience, and Julie says, go tell her, you know, so I walk around awkwardly, and, um, and, and, and I say, sorry, what's your name, and as she looks up at me, she's got these beautiful eyes, I hadn't looked in her eyes, so I awkwardly say, you've got beautiful eyes. (laughs) And then I say, what's your name? Her name's Beatrice. And I said, Beatrice, I was just sitting here and I just felt God telling me that you're his princess and that he loves you. And she goes, I know. (laughs) And in that moment, I realized I hadn't been there to minister to her. She'd been there to minister to me. And if we could just see each other like God sees us, it's something incredibly healing. And, and, and it empowers ministry, the gift of seeing each other like God sees us and seeing ourselves like God sees us. So, so the first thing is we got this identity as king's kids. Secondly, we get this, we get this um, invitation to the table. it uh, uh, was it Jonty? Have you ever gone to like a family occasion where the adults are sitting at the big table and they say, sorry, you guys sit at that table. You're like, uh, and then, maybe you haven't, hey, lucky you. Yeah. But this happened to me. I had lots of cousins. And then there comes a time where you're a bit older, they're like, you can sit here, and you're like, ah! I'm, you know, this is the proper table. This is the proper table. Well, this theme of sitting at the table is a theme that, that, that is very real in the human experience. We imagine that there's a circle, and we just go, if we could just be part of that circle, it would be awesome, And Psalm 23 says, the Lord prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies. He invites us to the table. Luke 22, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, I confer on you a kingdom, just like my father has conferred a kingdom on me, and you will eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Jesus loves using this metaphor and he's inviting ordinary people from the streets to sit at the table. One of the striking things about Jesus is in the gospel, how he just grabbed every opportunity to eat with people. He did some of his best ministry around tables. There's something about being invited to a table that speaks so deeply to us. And um, in my own experience, not so many years ago, I had an experience of being detabled. tabled Absolutely excruciating. I'm not gonna go into the details because it'll bore you, but I was part of a community where um, there were difficult conversations and we basically parted ways. And although we did our best to honor the relationships, somehow in this experience, I had interpreted this as a rejection. And I remember deciding, you know, I needed to pick my life up and just get going. But I'd wake up every night filled with pain, pain that I didn't know that adults could have. I remember the pain of being a kid at school and being ousted, being outside of the group, but I didn't know that adults could have this feeling to this degree. And I was utterly broken. And I, and I, and I went to a therapist and I journaled and I ached and the pain just didn't go away. I did everything I could to try to get better again because I knew that God still wanted to do stuff with me in my life, and I, was, I felt too broken to be useful again. I mean, I'd spend my life leading a church. Nobody should lead a church who's this broken, I thought to myself. You know, there has to be a degree of wholeness in a person, and I was far from whole. And, uh, and then I remember speaking to someone who said to me, you know, you got broken in community. You've healed as much as you can on your own outside of community, but your next healing is actually going to be back in community. This is the most terrifying thought. I don't know if I could trust people again. And my own story is of God kindly leading me back to a table of ordinary people and finding that belonging again and going, ah, oh, thank you, God, and the healing the healing comes. And I just share that story for those of you who have had your own experiences of once being in and you're out. And sometimes it's an overt rejection. Sometimes it's more subtle than that. But both are excruciating. And the healing that comes from being invited to God's table. And I also just want to suggest that this community is a table. It's a table with plenty of open seats, by the way. And and God has put you in this community. And you belong in this community. Even as I say this, I, I feel like the enemy has lied to many of you just put a question mark on whether you really belong. You kind of look at that group of people. They look like they're really at the table. Me, I'm at, I'm at the smaller side table. And um, I just want to announce to you that you belong at this table. And also I want to announce to you prophetically that there are many more people coming to this table. And you need to be big hearted and bring them in like Jesus would. There are many people that are going to come to this table and they, they come in they come with different from different cultures, different backgrounds, different experiences, different ages, different views. They don't come to the table looking like you or um, having the same understanding as you or the same track record as you. And to be big-hearted like King David, I love that verse in uh, in in Ephesians two. God has shown us kindness through Jesus Christ. David said, "I want to show." A, um, Miracle um, kindness for the sake of Jonathan. So there's this invitation to the table, and thirdly, there's inheritance in the land. There's inheritance in this land. Mephibosheth basically lived in a small little corner of nowhere in obscure land, and you can be sure that King Saul had some pretty prominent land because the king would get some cool hillside land, and um, and he was given this inheritance. And this idea of inheritance is actually one that is very strong in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've got the Israelites who are displaced in the world, and then God gives them land, this inheritance. And in the New Testament, the idea is that we also get an inheritance. Acts chapter 20 says that God is by his grace able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst God's people. In other words, each of you, not only at the table, but you have a specific contribution to make. this community you've got a certain thing to say you've got a voice in this community and you've got a part to play and God has got a calling on your life and uh, there's things for you to do in this world you get to represent Jesus there's an incredible dignity that comes from knowing I have a calling I'm not just a king's kid I'm not just somebody sitting at the king's table. I get to represent the king. You're authorized by the king. You don't need anybody else's permission if the king has authorized you. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. But before he says that, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You go in the authority of Christ. Kirk and Miranda. I mean, the work you guys do, standing at transits, intercepting people about to go into captivity. You are authorized by King Jesus to do this work. You're authorized by King Jesus to do this work. You're commissioned by the King himself, and uh, it's nice when the local authorities understand what you're doing and they, you know, they trust you completely. Regardless, you're you're authorized by King. Jesus. And God, we just want to pray for um, love justice, this incredible work of intercepting human trafficking, especially of children and women, but sometimes even men. God, we pray that you give them such discernment, that you would give them a hawk's eye to spot the, the signs, to spot the signs. Thank you for the workers that you've given them. We pray you give them more workers, Lord, to work uh, uh, these opportunities, these people to free the captives. Miranda, would you mind just praying for for people who are being trafficked? We just want to just join in saying amen to your prayer.
2: Lord, your kingdom comes through your workers and through the hands of your chosen people. And I thank you that you seek to save the lost and you said that whatever is done to the least of these we've done it as unto you um, and so I pray that you would em- empower people to protect those that are vulnerable those who are being taken advantage of and exploited that your protection would come through your church that we would stand up against injustice and that we would claim your kingdom your protection your inheritance for people who have yet to tangibly experience your love and I pray God that each of us would find our calling the ways that you are significantly and uniquely equipping us and and impassioning us to reach the lost and to step outside of our comfort and to seek an identity that is in you that it's not artificial. It's real. And it's based on eternal realities Mm. that have lasting fruit that cannot perish. So much of our striving is (laughs) trying to keep things that will perish and just pray for a release in our hearts based on this truth that who we are is unshakable in you. And there is no question that your kingdom is coming and these eternal realities are happening. And so I pray for just the small pieces of um, ways that you are touching down in our lives and speaking to us and telling us to reach the lost. And I just pray we would listen to your Holy Spirit and we would listen to that still small voice that's urging us. What on earth prompted King David to say, does Saul have a son? Does Jonathan have a son? And yet he listened to your voice and he found that crippled man who was hiding. And he elevated him to a place of justice. And I just pray that would be our receptivity to your heart. To elevate those who are laying in places of hiding. Who are unseen and who are and protected and
1: that we would be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name. Miranda was obviously being led by the Spirit in that prayer, but I I feel the same, this idea of inviting people to the table. This church has an inheritance in this part of the world, and that inheritance are the people that you get to reach and disciple. Their names are already written on the chair. God knows the names of those people. You get to bring them in. You're authorized to bring them in. And uh, there's a verse in Jude that says, snatch people from the darkness. You're authorized to have conversations with your friends, your family members, people that you meet, people you work with. Invite them to church. Have spiritual conversations with them. You get to intercept the direction of their lives. And one of the ways I like to think about evangelism is it's kind of waking people out of amnesia. They've forgotten who they are as God's image bearers. They're living for other things, but they are made in the image of God. I mean, Jesus uh, was, you know, told to give, asked whether he should give tax, and then he's holding up this coin, and he, and he says, whose face is in it? Whose image is in it? And it's Caesar's image. So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. People don't know that they are image bearers. They belong to God. And there's that story, uh, that movie, I, I can't recommend it because it's very violent, and there's an enormous amount of swearing, but uh, I did watch the movie, I confess. And um, and it's Blood Diamond. It's the 1999 Sierra Le- Leone uh, a conflict uh, um, diamonds story. And in the story, you've got, what's his name? Danny Archer, um, who's acted by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jimon Honsu, I think his name is. He's Solomon Vandy in this, in this movie. And they are busy trying to track down diamonds that have been hidden, you know. But the backstory here is that Solomon Vandy, is the local guy, uh, if many years before, his son had got kidnapped by soldiers. He's been brutalized and brainwashed, and now he's a child soldier. And he's been looking for the son, can't find him. And this boy's name's Deer. And as they're digging to find the diamond, this is near the end of the movie, suddenly a child soldier comes upon them holding a gun. He's about to blow their brains out. Solomon turns around and he sees his own son, Deer. And Deer doesn't even recognize him. So Deer's about to shoot, and then Solomon g- goes into this little speech, and he says something to the effect of, You are, dear Vandi, <laughs> your mother waits for you at home with your brother and your baby sister. Your dog, Babu, waits for you by the fire. They have done bad things to you, but you are a good boy, and you will come home with me. And Deer starts to shake as he remembers who he is, and the story ends as he drops the gun, and he... Braces his father. Every person who comes to faith in God, is a, it's, a, it's a lifting of an, a, an illusion. It's an opening of an eyes to know that you are loved. We've got such a powerful message to give to the world. God demonstrated his love for you in this. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And what you're deeply looking for is not gonna be found in more money or a more fancy house or a nicer holiday or more successful children, or a girlfriend, or what you're deeply looking for is a love relationship with God who made you. And once you've got this love, you don't lose it. Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors through this love, for nothing can separate us uh, from the love of God, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We get to have our lives defined by God. We don't find our identity in others. Or even by looking within, we look up and find our identity in God. And it doesn't, what has happened to you does not define you. God gets to define you. And when you let God define you, it's liberating and it puts you the path on healing. And find yourself at a table and you find yourself on a mission because you have an inheritance in this part of the world in the name of Jesus. The end.